0: Hi, this is Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast series, where we navigate China, India, Japan, and the broad emerging markets with members of Wisdom Tree and other industry leaders. Hi, today is February seventeenth, twenty twenty-three. Our guest is Paul Trelo to talk about U.S.-China tech war. Never a dull moment uh, on the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, can the world uh, support two technology standards? Uh, what other countries, aside from China and the US, would do under this new regime of US-China technology competition? And is this questioning or framing actually um, you know, not valid? So Paul is a Senior Vice President for China and Technology Policy Lead at ASG. Uh, he advises clients in technology, financial services, and other sectors. Um, a recognized expert in global technology, uh, Paul was a founder uh, recently of Practice Head and Managing Director of uh, Geotechnology Practice at uh, Eurasia. Previously, uh, Paul spent more than 25 years in senior positions in the US government, analyzing China's rights as a technology power and advising senior policymakers on a broad issue of uh, technology-related issues. Um, At the beginning of his career, he worked as an engineer for a semiconductor testing firm in Silicon Valley, which is uh, very uh, relevant, you know, even 25 years later. Um, Hey, Hey, Paul, tell us, uh, I mentioned a little bit uh, about yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, Albright's Stonebridge. What's you and your team's, you know, research process? What are the main
1: categories of your clients? Sure. So as you as you um noted uh, uh um I set up a previous practice at Eurasia Group, um that really is the sort of dealing with the intersection and the nexus of geopolitics and technology. So this is um th- th- these are issues that have become sort of now uh come to the fore um in a number of areas, not just U.S. China, but other areas where technology and technology regulatory issues, et cetera are all impacting companies' ability to do business you know, globally. So things like supply chains, um, things like export controls, uh, investment reviews, all of these things are complicating the ability of companies to do business uh, in different markets. And so at Albright Stonebridge, and we're also part of what we call Denton's Global Advisors, um, we do work with a lot of different clients in a lot of different sectors. Um, I'm also, now we just, actually launched a new practice group uh, this week, uh, the Technology Policy and Strategy Group. And I'm, I'm heading up that group. But I also serve as a, as a senior vice president on China. So a lot of the clients I work with straddle this US-China technology competition issue. Um, that's one set of clients. But we deal with clients um, around the globe and that have a variety of issues um, in Europe with, uh, you know, European digital policy, for example. Um, and, and, and also, not just technology companies, but also, you know, many companies now are, uh, are, are technology companies um, because they deal with things like data issues or, or supply chains. So it's a pretty broad swath of, of clients, both large tech companies and others uh, in various sectors. Uh,
0: without naming names, uh, can you give us some examples, like what kind of questions and, you know, services the clients are interested?
1: Sure. Well, for example... Um, we have clients that are involved in mergers and acquisitions, um, and they have to get regulatory approval uh, from places like China and the EU. Um, so we help them uh, with strategies around that, uh, how to engage governments, how to engage um, industry groups to get support for those kinds of activities. So it's we, we, we do a lot of analysis and sort of research on what's, what's happening, but we also uh, open doors for companies. And and help them figure out uh, who to talk to uh, in government regulatory bodies um, and how to sort of build messaging around um, uh, whatever problems they're having in in the regulatory sphere. So um, we also have a group at at Denton's Global Advisors, for example, that does, um, you know, crisis communications and does lobbying. We are not lobbyists at Albright Stonebridge, but within the broader firm. We do. We can do things like um, engagement strategies with Congress in the U.S. or the executive branch, um, or, as I said, you know, engagement with um, really critical uh, government uh, bureaucrats that that are deciding on important things like mergers and acquisitions. So it's a really broad uh, swath of things that we do for companies.
0: Thank you. Um, it's so timely because uh, last a couple of days there was already uh, China's uh, uh, battery uh, leader. Uh, C-A-T-L, CATL is having a, a joint venture that's my understanding with uh, you know the iconic uh, Ford which is a US company and they want to build a, 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 my understanding is a battery uh, operation in, in uh, close to Ford and now US wants a review uh because it's US China you know kind of a, a joint venture and China came out and says, wants a review, which is a little bit, I would say, unusual in the older days, uh, because usually U.S. is a technology leader and tech export control was usually you know, part of the U.S. tool to China. So is there anything different now that, you know, kind of a, to be called tech war instead of a, like a trade war?
1: Good question. Very good question. And. You know, the term I have used is really is not tech war, but tech cold war. Right. Because I, I think um, it's a little more subtle in the sense that it's really about technology competition in certain key sectors. And and the one one you mentioned, of course, um, is, for example, with the EV batteries, has are, are, become more uh, important lately. I think the big difference is really is that uh, over the last year in particular, senior U.S. government officials, uh, for example, like Secretary of State uh, Blinken in May, really put technology competition at the center of the U.S.-China relationship. That was really the first time that that, 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 that that a policy or a sort of approach or framework had been articulated so clearly. And then in September, even more importantly, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan talked about uh, three critical areas. He talked about advanced computing, and he talked about biotechnology and green technology as so-called force multipliers um, that were of primary concern to U.S. national security here, and and you know that the implication was U.S. dominance or U.S. you know playing more of a role in those areas. So advanced computing here means things like semiconductors, which we can talk about, and AI, and then of course the green and clean technology includes things like EV battery supply chains, and so that Ford uh, CATL deal that you mentioned. Has to be seen in light of the fact that the U.S. and, of course, China now consider um, the green green technology as a really important strategic field, and and it's definitely uh, now part of the competition. But the details of how policies and other regulatory issues are going to be rolled out in these areas is still, you know, still a work to, in progress. And that's why we have lots of clients in these in the space that we can help them uh, to through this, because the devil is always in the details of how governments are going to implement um policies as part of this tech competition but you're right the technology competition war i'm a little bit i still look a little uncomfortable with that term i think it's it really is sort of a cold war in part because it forces for example other countries to choose sides uh, in this Um, and then you know there are elements of it that that are like the cold war in terms of of withholding uh, access to different technologies Um, in these various key sectors that have been identified as strategic.
0: Thank you. And I think uh, I like the tech cold war because I'm uh, probably, uh, you know, optimistic. I think, uh, you know, cold war in the end, generally, I will say the final results are okay. You know, there was no hot war. um, And in some way, um, makes the U.S. um, a better country, uh, you know, because a lot of technology, uh, advances were, you know, very much uh, during Cold War developed by the Cold War under the pressure of the competition. So there are, you know, uh, there are things to be optimistic. Um, how how long do you think this would last? Uh, are we are we essentially are going to stuck in this tech Cold War for the next fifty years, or you think maybe? Um, you know, in uh, ten or twenty years, uh, things
1: will will get a little bit more clarity. It's a great question, um, and I think you know it's it's um it's probably going to be a fairly long term uh process, um of of competition. But it, it, the question is sort of how limited the competition will be, because right now, for example, Jake Sullivan is part of articulating this, uh, the US strategy, for example, he talked about a small yard, high fence. So at one level, the US goal here is to limit just certain types of, of technologies, high-end technologies, for example, that can be used in in military applications. That's that's in part the US justification. So there's a whole swath of other technologies that are part of the sort of broader technology stack that, they, that, that should be, for example, not as contentious Um, in terms of of this technology competition and this technology Cold War. So, for example, the October 7th controls that were um, released by the U.S., they were really targeted at very high end things like GPUs that the U.S. feels could be diverted uh, for use for military applications, for example, to model weapon systems. And so, but there's a a whole host of other Technologies uh, related that are not used for military technology that are used for civilian applications, for example, like drug discovery and um, you know and autonomous vehicles and and large language models, right? Like like yes. the currently uh, popular ChatGPT. So I think that there are these. That the question of how long this and how deep this technology uh, cold war gets sort of depends on how both sides react. To restrictions um, to the others. So, for example, as you rightly point out, the, the, the green technology arguably should be an area where both sides can can um, collaborate, right? Climate change is one of these transnational existential issues that both sides a, a agree is could be an area where the, where the countries cooperate. But if if green technology gets dragged into this technology cold war in a big way, and we don't really know that yet, the C A T L Ford deal, for example, will be a good example of this, then I think that, that we're in for a much longer <laughs> and a much tougher and, and serious um, conflict. Because in this case, for example, as opposed to semiconductors, where US companies dominate those supply chains, Chinese companies are very dominant in those um, EV battery and critical materials and mineral supply chains. Um, and so um, you know the US has to be very careful, for example, if, if China decides to cut off some of those things like rare earths, um, and some of these critical materials and the production technology associated with them, you know, that's going to be a really difficult and much more contentious um, technology cold war, and everybody will lose in that, right? I mean, yeah. and If climate change is really the 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 the, the number one issue that uh, that we face uh, on the planet here, then arguably US, the U.S. and China should be finding ways to cooperate um, to, in these areas. So that's I but- totally <laughs> agree. Most yeah, people. I think
0: that that's why the for the cattle uh, deal is something to watch. You know how China and the US uh, both are reviewing now, and it's an area where China has a a little bit better leverage than like a semiconductor. Like how I would say a lot
1: better leverage. Right?
0: <laughs> you know, I think that <laughs> yeah. that gets gets to to uh you know really. How to assess right the gap between U.S. and China in terms of uh, different fields of of technology cold war? How how do you guys uh try to assess the gap
1: or? That's a good question. I mean, you have to. It, it depends on uh, obviously each sector that we're talking about here. Um, you know, there are gaps and there's a lot of also interdependency between the two countries, for example. But obviously, there are these these areas that China is currently very concerned about, like semiconductor manufacturing tools, right? So it it turns out that Chinese companies were getting very good at manufacturing semiconductors um, over the last decade, for example, and companies like YMPC, very very competitive and innovative in uh, in memory, for example, in 3D NAND memory. And companies like SMIC, also very capable companies that are manufacturing Mature semiconductors for the auto industry, for example, and they're they're they were they were moving up the value chain. But it turns out that the real Achilles' heel for China are these tools that are used to make the chips. And so um, that's what we've seen over the last few months: is U.S. is trying to restrict access to some of these tools at some high some capability level. And so here, there's China is probably in Chinese companies, depending on which of those tools you're talking about, is three to five to ten years behind. The U.S. Uh, or and other, not just the U.S., but also Japanese um, and Dutch, <laughs> for example, equipment makers. So there, it's really a tough thing because that's a very globalized industry. China was just coming up um, and being and participating in a sort of global division of labor, global supply chains. And then these these restrictions, of course, are targeted at those areas because because um, Chinese companies are behind and because U.S. companies dominate. But in other areas like artificial intelligence where barriers are lower um, chinese companies are very capable in in in, in those areas so um, for example in natural language processing and and computer vision um, chinese companies are very competitive globally um, because they're they they have very smart engineers and, and and this and software is really an engineering issue and, they, and china produces a lot of really good um stem, edu- STEM educated students And so Chinese companies are very competitive in in something like artificial intelligence. Um, But in other areas, you know, again, each area is different. The other gaps I think are are in areas like systems integration, obviously Chinese companies, you know, aircraft manufacturing, large commercial aircraft, Chinese companies have have had traditionally been a little bit behind their Western counterparts. Um, But I think the, um, you know, the the areas where China is most concerned about are these hard and core technologies, which, which are tricky to develop. And China has, has um you know has had a uh, China, the Western companies have had a big head start over Chinese companies, um, but I think that the bottom line is that that the tougher areas for China in particular are where there where these industries are globalized and rely on sort of a globalized supply chain, and the supply chains are also are very complex, and the number of technologies involved um are, are are vast, and semiconductors is is one of those um where um, it's just tough to for one country for example like China to, to dominate uh, an entire sector. So that's where the, the, those areas that are global are really the tough ones and US companies you know are leaders in a lot of these areas too but those but those, even those companies depend on the access to the China market and access to educated students from China coming to the US for example and um, uh, and, and, uh, and and getting an education and working for US companies so it's it's not really a zero-sum game I don't like to think of it really always in terms of China and the US because th- there there are obviously very key linkages here but there are other countries too that are that are part of the equation so it really depends on the sector you're talking about in terms of you know where the where the competition is and and, and the use of the term race like arms race AI arms race oftentimes isn't very illuminating about what's really happening. Uh, in a particular sector so you really have to get under the hood a little bit and understand you know where the global leaders are how they interact with other countries um and you know to try the gaps
0: and I think uh, in terms of uh, AI, um, uh, you, you're completely right. I think China's uh, software, uh, I myself was trained as software engineer uh, 30 years ago. So uh, among my classmates uh, at Peking University, uh, they were, you know, 30 years ago, we were you know, kind of visioning that today, you know, like a chat GPT is you can talk to computers as if you know, talking to a human that was, you know, a dream of many uh, 30 years ago, but indeed the hard uh, chips that I think the U.S. has, the hard hardware could be a constraint for China's AI. I think the the sort of software um, constraint is much lower. Uh, on the other hand, I do have a question right now, you know, most of the strategy of the U.S. is um, still restricting very high-end technology. But says there are people who are pessimistic, uh, much more pessimistic, uh, is thinking that um, U.S. is possible to go into even wider technology blockade against China. Um, what are things to look for? You know, what What's like, obviously, you know, that is probably uh, the next stage of, of the Cold War, uh, if it gets worse. But what are the kind of things people need to look out for if if, if that becomes a possibility?
1: That's a great question. Um, so, yeah, I think there are definitely further <laughs> measures the U.S. is considering. When those uh, semiconductor controls, for example, were released in October, some of the senior Commerce Department officials talked about more export controls and they and they spoke specifically about areas like quantum computing um, and biotechnology, for example. Um, So those are areas where the US government could be considering more controls. In addition, there's there's been a long time consideration of having a, a, a review of outbound investment to China uh, in some of these more sensitive sectors like advanced semiconductors, AI, and quantum computing. So probably within the next couple of months, for example, we'll get some release of an executive order. This is an executive action that comes from the, from the, from the, from the, the executive branch um, that will be released uh, in the US and will probably establish, it'll be a long-term process to establish this, this, this um, sort of what they call outbound CFIA. So this is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US is a, is, a, is a body that reviews inbound investment. Um, and that's been functioning for almost a decade, but there has been no uh, review of outbound investment uh, in, for example, critical technology sectors. And so I think we're gonna see um, that process pick up pace this year. The, legis- the legislative options are also on the table. So we have a lot of new committees um, in, uh, in Congress in the US, for example, the new House Select Committee on China and they'll also want to explore um, some restrictions, for example, on um, outbound investments targeting these very again these very key sectors that the U.S. government has identified as a national security priority, like advanced computing, semiconductors, um, artificial intelligence, uh, and quantum computing. Um, and that's 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 a, a huge area where we think we'll see a lot of action this year. And finally, I would just also, the data issue is also important here. So there's, you, you, you're you probably familiar, you haven't asked me about TikTok yet, but.
0: I, um, I want you. Yeah, please go ahead.
1: Is issue, what, what sorts of data can, go, can be transferred across borders? China has a very advanced, for example, data governance system. Um, Europe does also, but the U.S. has lagged behind. But there's been growing concern in the U.S. about data, and TikTok is an example of that. Um, that's generated about US, U.S. citizens and that, you know, where that data ends up. So I think in the, this year we'll also see a lot of focus on things like the data issue and the U.S. will be looking at, you know, for example, uh, broader national uh, legislation around data privacy. So that's going to become an issue in, going forward in U.S.-China relations.
0: Yes, I got questions all the time on TikTok uh, in China. People are very, you know, uh, curious. Like, will US uh, ban TikTok, which is a very popular app? Uh, 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 do you, what do you think? I, I I think this is this issue is so complex. It's so dependent on where the political winds goes. Uh, it's so hard to answer.
1: Yes, very good, a good question. And just briefly, um, about three weeks ago, I was invited by TikTok by the CEO um, to hear this, a briefing that they gave to a number of people in, in, in Washington here um, about the, their, their efforts to comply with, the, with an agreement that they're negotiating with, with CFIUS, with the U.S. government, um, around data privacy, right? And so they've, they've um, put in place a, a major project. I think they spent $1.5 billion over the last year. Um, preparing to comply with an agreement. is called a consent, dec- a consent decree. And, th- and they set up, for example, um, uh, servers in the US that are operated by Oracle to store all of the US user data. So they're, they're specifically addressing things like data privacy, also censorship um, of content, and then finally the, the artificial intelligence algorithm, sort of reviews of how that algorithm um, is working, particularly the recommendation algorithm in, in, uh, in TikTok, which makes it so popular because it's so good, right? Um, And so they've taken, you know, pretty significant measures to try to address the the, the compliance issue. But those negotiations stalled um, uh, late last year. And so the company now is sort of on a charm offensive um, to try to um, educate people about this project that that, it's called Project Texas that they're doing. So the CEO, for example, next month, March 23rd, will appear uh, in, in front of a U.S. committee of the House to, to, to talk about TikTok and talk about, you know, that what they're doing on the score. But as you rightly note, it's, a, it's still a highly charged political issue. And so over the last year, Congress and state-level governments, for example, have been jumping in on TikTok and state governments have banned uh, TikTok, for example, on phones that are government issued. I think Pennsylvania just did it did, did this this week. Texas, you know, last week, almost every day there's a new state banning TikTok. But the problem is a a broad ban on TikTok, you know, nationally would be really tough um, legally for 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 um, the U.S. government to pursue. Um, In 2020, the the Trump administration tried to do this. Um, There were a lot of legal challenges um, and complicated legal challenges um, and, and those those prevailed at that time. So there would have to be legislation, for example. Um, to to um, to make possible or you know to reduce the, the 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 possibility of a legal challenge and in the meantime you know hundreds I think TikTok has a hundred million users in the U.S. lots of influencers lots of people making money you know using TikTok so I think that it's going to be a still this year we'll probably see a sort of titanic battle um, either way if TikTok um, gets an agreement here you know there'll still be a lot of critics. Um, but it could serve as, a, as an example, a good example of how um, a Chinese uh, app can can operate in the U.S. Um, and if it fa- if it fails and there's an attempt to ban it, we're going to probably see a long legal battle, a long series of legal battles um, by users and others to try to try to try to prevent this. So it's going to be an interesting outcome in terms of how also how the U.S. develops its own data privacy legislation, you know, broader um, because most people the, the the bottom line is people think that. Instead of targeting TikTok, the U.S. should also have this broader um, data privacy legislation like the Europeans, like China, right? And to have standards, the same standards that everybody has to meet instead of sort of singling out TikTok um, because of all the furor over its, um, you know, it's the potential for data to get back to the Chinese government. Um, so it's it's a big issue. In the US Absolutely,
0: right and and I think the thing is that's why TikTok is uh, the parent company is never going to go uh, listed because if it's a listed company, then the public information disclosure and the stock price it becomes even bigger issue. So I think in China, um, it it try not to um, you know uh, kind of uh, allow the. Uh, TikTok and partly both sides. TikTok probably also realized that operating as a public company also got a significant pressure. But to add to on it, um, do, you know, India did ban TikTok, mm-hmm. even though there were significant influencers who were using right. uh, TikTok as um, is there anything uh, that can, you know, possibly be, you know, taken up as a as a argument to ban TikTok in the US? From the Indian experience,
1: well, you know, India has a different legal system and um, than the U.S. So I think there, the the um, the imperative, you know, that India India China relations were uh, ended up being pretty bad after after the border a border incident, um, and so the Indian government decided to just it was banning a lot of other apps besides TikTok, and and they decided to just ban um, those apps. Um, I think the problem in the U.S. is different because of you know, the legal structure and some of the constitutional uh, issues around the use of authorities um, to ban free speech, for example. So there's a lot of emphasis in the U.S. that there, there are amendments to some of the U.S. authorities that sort of that ban um, uh, that bar banning of, of apps like 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 TikTok and WeChat. Um, that are that are used primarily for communications. So I think there's there's some there's a there's some big differences in the legal system, and then probably there's more users in the U.S. Too. India was pretty big. I think there was probably second or third after Japan um, in terms of, of TikTok users. Um, but in the U.S., I, I think you would see a lot of of, of TikTok influencers you know, use the legal system to try to, um, to fight against um, uh, any kind of a ban. The, the, the
0: dollar amount uh, involved uh, definitely significantly more okay. than any other country. So I think it, it's going to be an issue. Uh, um, personally, I don't use TikTok. I, I use WeChat, which you mentioned, which is an app where I, I think uh, a lot of uh, um Oversee, you know, Chinese Americans right. use because that's the only way you could uh, connect with uh, people in mainland. Uh, is uh cheaply in the yeah, old days. WeChat you have to. Too. I
1: mean, if I travel to China, you have to have WeChat, or it's really hard to communicate with people, right? So we should connect sorry. on WeChat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I do. I. The thing is, every family member back in China is on WeChat, and also in Chinese companies. Use WeChat uh, significantly as well, so it they don't use emails
1: or phone numbers right. to connect. Nobody answers so emails; you have to have WeChat.
0: <laughs> yeah, have that's a. Clear. I it's it's something. It's a navigate. It's a completely different uh, uh, landscape to navigate. Uh, also, the public or private uh, boundary is very different uh, in the U.S. and and in China. In the U.S., you know, uh, these chatting messages are considered uh, just private, but in China. Um, one could be chatting with the boss on WeChat, and and still a lot of those conversations are not captured. I think now there are more uh issues coming up because last year there was a te- technology analyst who who gave some uh information on WeChat and got uh fined. Uh, one of them also lost job. So I think now people realize even in China that you know, work and life has different standards. But, but China is emerging, you know, emerging market and a lot of the laws is hard to enforce. So I think, uh, it, you know, the TikTok issue, um, Chinese companies are pretty good in meeting what what's required. Like if U.S. laid out um, uh, pretty clear things, like you have to do this, do this, do this to meet the requirement, uh, I think uh, TikTok... Uh, as long as they don't ban it, they will meet the requirement. But right now, I think the the trick issue is um, the political, I think the political will right. has not yet convalesced. You know, some people just want to ban it. Doesn't matter, you know. Uh, so I think the TikTok issue and, and the Ford cattle issue, all these issues are really impacting uh, people's uh, and businesses will, are, are the leading Indicator of the cases uh, in terms of, you uh, know, in, in a tech cold war, what's considered success for the U.S. And what's considered success for China in, in this kind of uh, broad competition?
1: <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, I think for the U.S., again, I think going back to, to some of the, the the comments from senior officials, I think the goal is one goal of winning is to maintain U.S. leadership in some of these uh, in some of these areas, but that's complicated too. So part of the part of the goal of U.S. strategy in this in this competition is to, for example, onshore um, more advanced manufacturing. So to, to sort of rekindle the that what once was a, a very vibrant manufacturing sector in the U.S. through things like the chip act. So we actually advise a lot of companies on who are applying for chip act money. So that's a that's a that's a an area where the U.S. Wants, seeks to win, for example, by reducing its de- the dependence of U.S. companies on, for example, Taiwan and heavy dependence on Taiwan TSMC, um, and, and 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 sort of boosting uh, U.S. share of global semiconductor manufacturing. So that's one, you know, that's one measure of if, if by 2030 the U.S. has, you know, 10, 20 percent. They have about 10. We have about 10 percent now of, of global capacity. Then that will be considered a win. So, so the, the the sort of industrial policy side of the of the competition um, has, I think, a little clearer metrics for winning. But then the other side of that is the sort of restriction side, the export controls and others to restrict technology as, again, as part of an effort to maintain US leadership here. And I think the, the challenge there is that there's a lot of downsides to that for everybody, right? Because these these supply chains, for example, around semiconductors are global. They're not just US, they involve Europe, they involve Japan. And so they're very disruptive um, to those supply chains, which have been going on for 20, 30 years, you know, largely driven by market mechanisms, You know, some level of government subsidy, but pretty much driven by you know the best companies win, there's a lot of collaboration. Um, this is why, for example, TSMC is such a dominant player in, advanced manufacturing of very high-end semiconductors. It's just a really amazing company, and they have a lot of trust for their clients and for their uh, their suppliers of tools, for example. It's just, it's just a really good business model. And so now, now we're seeing attempts to disrupt this <laughs> um, through these, these, you know, both industrial policy and the export controls and restrictions on technology are both disrupting those those very finely tuned supply chains. So we don't really know, you know, ultimately the winner there is whether there's going to be winners. We don't really know that. There's going to be a lot of losers. Already they're losers in China, right? Uh, Chinese companies like YMTC that have been hit hard by the export controls. And then the U.S. suppliers, uh, for example, U.S. leading U.S. toolmakers are going to lose $5 billion this year, they told the U.S. government um, because of those restrictions um, on exports to China. So they're going to be a fair number of losers, depending on how that, 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 um, you know, that sort of process goes forward on the, on the other areas like green tech, as we've already talked about, you know, if, if, if we get into a really tough competition and more uh, conflict over those green, green technology supply chains, like EV batteries, you know, again, there's going to be a lot of losers because um, you know, instead of, of of cooperating and collaborating on, uh, on, you know, on those green tech supply chains and reducing, Emissions um, that are caused by, by that are caused by you know the the, the current uh, industrial structure. It's going to be tough to, to solve climate change. It's going to be tough to to make progress. Well, U.S. and China are the two biggest players in that space, right? So hopefully we can avoid a tech cold war or tech competition in the in the green technology area because that would be really bad, and I think there would be you know many more losers than winners.
0: Probably also in the biotech area as well. Because in the biotech area, China is also very up and coming. Uh, We did an interview, you know, just a a, a few months back about a CEO who founded a biotech company uh, listed in the US. So China's biotech company, uh, I think, uh, potential, now people are realizing it. I think through some of the vaccine development, you know, China is behind the US, but actually, uh, among the you know, except the U.S., China is among the leading powers in terms of biotech uh, uh, drug development. Uh, what yes. other countries to play in this tech cold war? Like, can you give us some examples? Like, how are other countries, like other major countries, like Japan, Germany, are they? Uh, how are how are they going to navigate this uh,
1: technology competition? That's a great question. And you know the u s in, in some of the statements about this competition has has specifically said that that there's not a desire to force other countries, for example, to choose sides. but in some of these areas, that's in fact what's happening, right? because for example, these again the going back to those uh, those export controls that were recently released, the u s is seeking to get both Japan and the Netherlands to go along with those controls, right And that's a very complicated Uh, Effort. That's sort of what they call a plurilateral uh, uh, agreement. Usually, export controls have been handled multilaterally through through agreements like the Wassenaar Agreement, um, where there are many countries involved. But here, because of the nature of these controls, the two biggest players are really Japan and the Netherlands. But they also have suppliers, for example, in Germany, um, and France, and, and Korea. The other other countries are are also involved in this. So so in a sense, the U.S. is forcing countries in that particular arena. To choose sides, so that's a really so there definitely are are many other countries involved. But then the the really big big area looking forward is like the global south because if you look at the global south, for example, China has been and Chinese companies have been very active in building infrastructure as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. Um, And so those countries, uh, a lot of their telecommunications infrastructure is built by Huawei, for example. Um, And so those countries already have a have a big sort of commitment to China and Chinese companies. And now the US is, is saying, okay, well, and, and Europe would like to up up their level of of investment and um and involvement in those countries' infrastructure. But China has has, has been very willing to provide lots of um lots of uh, of assistance in that area. And some of those countries, you know, their rail infrastructure and their and most of their their, their really modern infrastructure is built by Chinese companies. So that's going to be an interesting area of competition going forward. Those countries again do not want to really choose sides in this they would prefer not to they would prefer to get investment and and benefit from both sides here Um, but they're going to probably in some cases be forced to choose um, to some degree between um the us and china for you know going forward for investment in infrastructure so that's going to be a, a key area but but yes this competition is global right thank you um, yeah no this sector and depending on the topic it's it's a very much can be drawn draw yeah I
0: think of... it's also uh very much dependent on. us china relationship which I'm somewhat pessimistic uh given you know because both sides have you know public opinion uh, that, you know, that's not necessary on, you know, loosening up. So it's, I think it's at least, you mentioned a date, like 2030, you know, where, where the U.S. can achieve a certain, uh, re, re, re you know, renaissance of manufacturing in the U.S. I think by then, you know, probably we'll be able to see some metrics, you know, how much of advanced manufacturing is coming to back to the U.S., which is also dependent on uh, how, you know, U.S. immigration policy, uh, you know, how how, how yeah. willing it is to open the door to uh, tech uh, talents, uh, which include China. Um, you just yeah, traveled this, across just it, it yes. Yeah, also, it's, it's
1: important, you know, even as all this is happening, two-way U.S.-China trade this last year reached an all-time high, right? So we have to keep in perspective that there is this t- technology competition happening at a certain level, but in many areas, you know, there's a tremendous amount of trade between the US and China and China remains this very strong manufacturing power. And and in some cases, there's just no alternatives to the type of, of ca- capacity and the export-oriented infrastructure that China has. Apple is a good example, right? Where... Apple and, and Zhengzhou is with th- with 300,000 employees using uh, Foxconn, for example, to manufacture iPhones. That's a huge operation. Apple can't really move big chunks of that to other countries like India, for example, very easily because China provides such a, uh, a business friendly environment to do that. Right. There's a customs yeah. facility in Zhengzhou for Pete's sake. Right. In India, it's really it's really difficult to get you know, they get customs uh, uh, approvals and the, the sort of friction and ease of doing business is very difficult. So China has a lot of advantages and will continue to have those advantages. And so even some of our clients, you know, will be continue to want to have manufacturing facilities in China because there's there's just so many advantages to that. So we have to be careful to say, yes, there's a, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of friction at the political level, but there still is a lot of or a lot of areas where there's going to be continuous levels of trade yeah. in the US and China, and we have to hope that the, the political situation doesn't sort of um, you know make things you know more difficult, uh, for example, for companies to to operate in that environment and for both sides to benefit from that.
0: Um, so I think uh, you just traveled across Asia.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. What's your quick take in
0: terms of uh, you know your experience?
1: Um, I, it, it was great post-pandemic. I think things are coming back to life. I was in India, um, and I had a great, a great, some great meetings there. India, of course, is also wanting to play in the manufacturing of semiconductors and other, other microelectronics, and so um, they, they were. There was a lot of excitement about India and India's role. So India, I think, will become a bigger, much bigger player. Across all of these technology supply chains we've been talking about, but you know, again, as I noted, there's some there's some real challenges there. Everybody wants to go to India, but then you know, the again, the ease of doing business and infrastructure and reliable power and water are a real challenge. And then I spent some time in Taiwan. Um, I had a great some great discussions in Taiwan about technology issues, um, and just really am amazed uh, whenever I go out to places like Sinchu where a lot of the the world's most advanced manufacturing manufacturing capabilities are for semiconductors those those giant, jo- just the sheer size of those of those the, of those fabs are just it's, it's really amazing and there's so many of them there um, thank and you then, yes yeah, go yeah, ahead it's, it's very exciting and then i'll be going to japan um in next month and i may I may end up going to china as travel opens up um in the post uh, covid <laughs> uh period here i'm hoping that the visa issues will be easier to do because before the pandemic for for work i was traveling very frequently to asia almost every month to china or japan um, or singapore because we have a lot of clients with again equities in all these countries and so i need to be get out there go to conferences um you know keep up with what's going on in those regions and then help companies, um, you know, navigate some of the tough issues. This is
0: great. Yeah, no, I think uh, I'm also hoping to go to China uh, uh, this summer and we'll report back in terms of uh, what I see there. Uh, I I think I'm very confident that travel will be back. It's just right now, uh, everybody needs to get a new passport, you know, visas and and so that's the lines are, you know, very cute and airlines are still in the midst of getting the flying capacity back. Right. Um, but uh, China is uh, in some way very different. And we want to bring more um, China related
1: contents to, to you. Where
0: if we, people want to find out more about your research, where to find
1: it? Sure. Great question. I, um, I do a regular column with the China Project. Um, so a lot of, uh, and I'll be doing another one soon, um, I hope, on the sort of chat GPT craze in China. Um, if you just Google me, you'll pull up a lot of um, white papers, for example, that, uh, that I authored with, uh, when I was at Eurasia Group. And also on, on, on my new company website, um, Albrechtsumbers.com, you can see we're putting up some, uh, some white papers. We just put out a strategic risks and opportunities in the tech policy space for 2023 that's on our on the ASG website. And then I have a number of upcoming articles coming out, um, the geopolitics of the metaverse, um, which will be on the in World Politics Review, and um, probably a foreign affairs article that will talk about some of these technology competition issues coming up. Um, and then finally, a um, uh, I'm, there'll be a chapter of a book that I authored on US-China, a great power competition, and I did the chapter on China's uh, sort of s S&T and strategy. So... Um, you know, it, it, it's pretty easy to find. <laughs> if you just Google my name and semiconductors or whatever technology AI, you'll probably find some some things online. But the China project is where I do a, usually a regular column. Um, and then occasionally I'll, I'm, I'm doing papers um, for on request for different uh, magazines and other publications in the technology
0: space. Thank you, Paul. Uh, again, Paul's name is uh, last name T R I O L uh, O. He's on Twitter as well. And I'm also on Twitter. So if you just uh, find us on Twitter, you can get uh, updates as well. And thank you, Paul. What what, you know, a great conversation and we will. Definitely reach out to you again. I feel this is not just a one-year, two-year thing. No. It's really going to be a, probably during our lifetime. This that is an issue this of our, our lifetime.
1: Absolutely. How, yes. How did the U.S. and China learn to live together? Uh, <laughs> and how can we avoid conflict? It's a really important issue.
0: Thank you so much, myself included. I think uh, we'll, we'll talk more. And thank you for listening.
1: Thank you for, for having me.